2: Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast, the podcast dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer, so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed in medical school. And now here's your host, Patrick Beeman. Hey everyone, it's Patrick here. Um, this is a special episode of a three-part series that I did with Max Cooper from the Da Vinci Hour podcast. You can listen to the full interview on that podcast channel. Just, you know, search DaVinci Hour wherever you listen to podcasts. But Max and I have been going back and forth. We've been recording some pathology cases and collaborating DaVinci Academy and Inside the Boards on a series of question dissections. You can hear those over on the Inside the Boards Study Smarter podcast, but eventually we will compile a library of those so you can have some on the go long form question dissections. Right now we're working on about 50 pathology cases and we are also working on some ethics ones as well. And so because Inside the Boards is all about helping you learn on the go, First up, here's a case from Kahn's Cases. You can find an audio version of that book, which is great for your USMLE ethics prep and shelf exams, whether you're at step one, step two, or step three level. You can get, with a premium subscription to ITB's Audio QBank, an audio version of Kahn's Cases. And here's an example of one of those questions now.
0: Kahn's Ethics Cases. A 30-year-old woman was recently diagnosed with acute leukemia. She insists on seeing a homeopathic traditional healer rather than undergoing chemotherapy. Which of the following responses is the most appropriate? A. I recommend that you see an oncologist. If you disagree, then you should seek treatment elsewhere. B. This is a big decision. I'd like you to see a psychiatrist to make sure you understand everything before making a choice. C. I can recommend a traditional homeopathic healer that I've worked with in the past. D. In addition to seeing a traditional healer, I would like you to consider chemotherapy. E. Chemotherapy is the only realistic chance you have of treating your leukemia. Answer. Option choice D. In addition to seeing a traditional healer, I would like you to consider chemotherapy. The explanation behind this is that you should never refuse to see a patient or defer care to another physician unless the case is outside of your expertise. There is no indication that the patient needs to see a psychiatrist. Rather, this is a case of differing cultural backgrounds. Recommending a traditional healer and ignoring the suggested chemotherapeutic regimen sends a wrong message to the patient and goes against what you really feel will help this patient. Likewise, Ignoring her suggestion will likely lead to noncompliance, mistrust, and a feeling of degradation. The best choice is to incorporate both options so long as the homeopathic treatment does not interfere with the chemotherapy regimen.
1: All right, everybody, welcome back to the DaVinci Hour podcast. I'm joined this week by Dr. Patrick Beeman. Uh, Patrick and I uh actually went to the same med school, but a few years apart, uh, we'll talk about it and then connected, I think, was it now three or four months ago now? And we've been producing some educational content and uh, I'm happy to have Patrick on here to uh, talk about his clinical practice and then his, uh, obviously his very busy contributions to medical education at large. So Patrick, welcome to the DaVinci Hour. appreciate you coming.
2: Absolutely. It's it's my pleasure, honestly. I And yeah, so I, I don't know if I've maybe I was on the physio the physiology by physio podcast before that was part of our network but other than that I have never been on somebody else's podcast. thank you for uh,
1: this appreciate it I, I feel honored I mean this you as we'll get into you are the podcast master in the the medical education mm-hmm. world so um very honored to to have that so why don't you tell us a little bit about so you uh, you are both obviously a practicing physician, and then obviously you know do medical education. So maybe let's first talk about your your clinical practice and uh, give us maybe give us a little bit of background on your your education, your residency, and then kind of what your practice right now looks like.
2: So in in very broad strokes, I majored in philosophy and went on to to get a master's in philosophy um, somewhere between undergrad and graduate. Studies decided that maybe I should go to med school and kind of discern that. Um, Went to UT, University of Toledo, College of Medicine, um, as a proud Ohioan. All of my education was in Ohio. Shout out Lorain County Community College and Franciscan University of Steubenville, Cleveland State University, and the University of Toledo College of Medicine. So um, Ohio, love Ohio except when it's cold. Um, <laughs> did med school 2010, I graduated, went and did a residency in uh, OBGYN at the Wright-Patterson Wright State University, also in Ohio. Uh, <laughs> Air Force Base combined a program in OBGYN and did some, uh, it was Ed Pellegrinos. This is a important aspect of my, my story, but Edmund Pellegrino, the chair of the President's Council on Bioethics, uh, while I was a medical student in 2008. Um, I was his, his fellow at Georgetown and got to learn under somebody who's been called the father of bioethics, so continued kind of my interest in philosophy. And I am like two classes in a dissertation away from a uh, well, it's a, a doctorate in bioethics or a PhD in bioethics from a, a school in Rome. But if I'm honest, I have not like done anything with that for like six years now. And so I'm probably gonna have to re-enroll if I decide to go back because life is busy. And I somehow thought that I could do that doctoral degree while on my first Air Force active duty assignment out of residency to Scott Air Force Base in Illinois, (laughs) and while starting inside the boards, my podcast for medical students studying for the USMLE, which I launched in 2016. So I've been building that up, but clinically, I practice OB hospitalist medicine, so I am, you know, you hope, completely unnecessary. Um, during the course of a a shift, um, but 1% of the time extremely necessary. Um, So, you know, I do a mix of, you know, ER calls and, you know, labor delivery and obstetric surgery for common obstetrical reasons. Uh, Do that now a few times a month. And I'm also the medical director of a level one opioid treatment program Two-year anniversary is this month, May twentieth. That I've been doing that, and that has completely redefined my love for being a doctor and the way I look at this work. Um, my day-to-day, like professional enjoyment, and satisfaction. I honestly, I, I cannot say enough good things about addiction medicine as a field um, and the patient population that I get to treat in clinic. So I'm, I'm just going to leave it at that because I, I will go on and on.
1: No, that's a great overview. And I, I definitely want to get a little more into the addiction medicine thing because I think that's, that's such an interesting field. Um, as far as ob what made you want to pursue that field as a medical student? I think, you know, obviously we have a lot of med students uh, listening. And uh, what, yeah. what made you pursue that, that field back, back in your UTCOM days?
2: Yeah. Uh, ask myself that question from time to time, you know, I think that the way I thought my career would go was that it would model Ed Pellegrino's. He he was, you know, truly a, a philosopher and a physician. He held dual appointments in the departments of philosophy and internal medicine at Georgetown for decades and decades. He was the president of the Catholic University of America at one point. Um, but he was, he was always a doctor practicing while he did these other things, um, including writing over 600 articles in, in peer reviewed publications and making foundational contributions to the field of medical ethics and 14 books, I want to say, um, I believe he did 14 books, um, monographs as well, uh, and did all that on a typewriter. Oh wow! <laughs> yeah, when I when I uh, was there at Georgetown in t- 2008, um, I believe he was in his mid 80s, um, but still, once once a year, he spent a month on service or something at. On the on the wards. Oh wow! <laughs> at Georgetown University Hospital. Yeah, that dude was indefatigable, and still wrote on a typewriter uh, every morning. And so I I thought like you know I really like ethics. I really like philosophy. I do not want to give that up. But it seems like medicine's going to take a lot of my time and not really allow other interests unless they're integrated. And so what fields have a lot of ethical issues, how can I get that, you know, dual academic appointment in philosophy, in the philosophy department and um, still practice medicine? And I thought okay, it's this, this got to be OBGYN. There's like literally no one um, that I know who had professional training or expertise in both fields and i found that a little bit frustrating because going into medicine it seemed like a lot of my my colleagues uh, physicians and those in training we're not as all about distinctions as, as I was, (laughs) um, love to make distinctions and, and arguments and, and, and things of this nature. Um, and a lot of the, the people I know in philosophy, um, in bioethics, especially when you're talking about fundamental philosophy, the stuff that, you know, people are easy to parody or turn into like a a little like Sunday morning cartoon. Um, But those questions of existence and what is knowledge and what is right or wrong? Are those concepts that exist? Is there, you know, all the big ones with, with those, like they captured me so much, but there's, I understand a certain like pie in the sky or ivory tower or out of touch, um, or there can be sort of transcendentalism that denies the reality of the here and now. And so the people that I knew in philosophy often when they would write or talk about bioethics concepts, I feel like they wouldn't quite get the facts correct, um, or didn't quite understand the nuances of a particular clinical encounter. And for me, like I'm a Catholic. So that figures big into like why I do medicine too, because Jesus was kind of all about like healing people Mm -hmm. and uh, trying to like, you know, I'm, I'm part of that club. I kind of feel like I gotta follow that, um, the, the, the founder, yeah. his, his model. And uh, I'd, I'd get very um, frustrated by the sort of in, incessant debates between, you know, people who um, are on one side or another of a debate when it, it would be clear to me that like the terms in which they were um, talking were at odds and in, in equivocations so there, there really wasn't any communication happening. Um, and I thought maybe that'll be my contribution to, um, you know, medicine and, and bioethics would be to find some common ground for people who strongly disagree on fundamental moral issues. And that's because my mentor seemed particularly adept at um, confidently and skeptically with with great skepticism holding his beliefs you know, holding true to his beliefs while also i don't think making any enemies at the same time and you know we're all trying to help people at least that's what we say in our med school interviews and yeah you know, we should all be <laughs> leaning into that so hopefully that answers your question
1: yeah 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 definitely um you know, when it came to ob was was there- was it just like the mix of like medicine and surgery that you liked, or or did you, um, or that particular uh, patient population and like women's you know reproductive health and those types of things? Is that were, the, were those kind of playing factors in as well? Um, and, and like you said, like all the ethical dilemmas that can come with yeah. with that as well.
2: So I would say, as intellectual subject matter, um, I always thought like the reproductive system. And development embryology um, was just like really cool. I mean, I don't know it, it always struck me as just like this this what was that phrase you learn in like bio 101 ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny Do, is that legit? I, it sounds familiar <laughs> I, in any case, I don't know why that's popping into my head but, Subject matter I thought was interesting uh, for sure, but what came to shape things was my third year medical school experience um, in large part. I had had a hint of OBGYN might, you know, maybe this is something I'd like. When I was an undergraduate post student at, at Metro Health, I did this thing called the Chester Scholars Program. Um, oh, yeah. And, yeah, Metro Health is like a half an hour from where both of us, uh, you know, our hometowns, right? Uh, essentially. So it's yeah. uh, outside Cleveland. It's where Salk studied or invented, released the polio vaccine. Oh, really? I didn't know like, that. Wait, wait. Maybe it was Sabin, but it's one of those. It's mm-hmm. like uh, one of the few um, county funded hospitals uh left um but i I shadowed this maternal fetal medicine high risk doctor you know as this like 20 year old kid and um he let me scrub taught me how to scrub so taught me how to wash my hands like a doctor does and hold a retractor and in a uh, c-section and i was like this is so cool so awesome and it just like stuck with me um, just the hands-on nature of it as well. So I go to med school. I'm thinking surgery. I'm thinking probably pediatric surgery because, you know, I think little kids are cool. I have my own kids at this point. Watching them grow and develop is like, it's just like keeps my, my interest. And you do some crazy cool technical procedures in ped surgery, but you also have to do like 10 years of it, you know, including significant research and and I came to find out third year that I really did not mesh well with general surgeons as a group. Um, they were not, as it were, like my people. I would advise medical students, and I do now, like that finding. You know your people, the the personality types that tend to go in the field that you want to go into. I think it should be pretty obvious, you know, who those are. And one of the the top things in your calculus on what specialty to choose. I would say uh, a lot of OBGYN personality types don't fit me, uh if that makes sense. Uh although there also I have like I was once told I always tell this story whenever I get a chance that somebody once told me in residency I had honorary ovaries. And so like, I really try to play that up, you know, um, <laughs> I'm super sensitive and in touch with my <laughs> feminine side, <laughs> but, uh, I knew general surgeons were not my type of people and their lives seemed too crazy. I did GYN onc at, uh, Toledo hospital with Garth fibs. Oh yeah. I worked was, with him. He was amazing. Like an excellent teacher, but that rotation did not prepare me for what GYN oncology was like, even though he was a GYN oncologist, like looking back, I realized he had set up a a gig that really was ideal for life. And he essentially, you know, did all these like kick-ass surgeries like all day long um, and would have he had a nurse practitioner who helped him round and do a lot of the, the paperwork stuff. And I believe he had to round on Saturdays, which didn't seem too bad to me. But when I did subsequent GYN-ONC rotations, I realized, uh, you know, like the, some of the schedules, I mean, it was insane. I, I did this like fourth year GYN-ONC rotation at Walter Reed in, um, in D.C., and Like the fellow, the GYN-ONC fellow, I remember getting at the hospital around like 6 a.m. And I remember him routinely being there till 8 or 9 p.m. at night on these rotations. And then like, you know, the end of the rotation also come to find out he had to cover and round every day and do cases at this, this other hospital, like concurrently he's like, yeah, I just like, before we come in here, like, you know, six or seven, we go over to the other side and it's not easy to get around in, you know, Washington, DC. Um, but I loved Ankh. I loved, I like being, I like being with, I like being in tough situations with people. I mean, I may not look Serious. Um, (laughs) I may not look like I have any social skills, and I was homeschooled for a large portion of my education, but I'm really comfortable dealing with bad news and when people are afraid. And so those are things that have applied really well in OBGYN, and which made me kind of like GYN oncology, but as I moved into residency, I realized I would not have been able to handle another three to four year fellowship after four years of OBGYN. It took its toll on me, frankly, um, mentally uh, and physically to a certain extent. I've done some really cool things and learned a lot of like awesome surgery. Uh, I've become uh, still, am like endlessly fascinated with, like just motherhood as a concept. Like I am not selfless enough to do that job. Yeah. And I see a lot of women, I mean, they go through some shit to, to bring us into the world. And even now, like I, like I re- I just got back uh, from my parents. That's why I was late for the call. Um, I, I went over there and I'm like, man, I just thinking like, I, I really don't appreciate my parents like I should, but I do leave work Every day and think like, I, I am thankful that I do not have to go through so much that women do. And I'm happy about the OB training. I I especially love, you know, taking care of uh, women with substance use problems uh, because they don't really get treated that well um, at all, like doubly so. If you're using while pregnant, the judgment is... Judgment is strong and it is not helpful.
1: I can imagine. Yeah.
2: Yeah. But yeah, I, uh, one week before the fourth year match, when I had to submit specialties, I was still torn between psychiatry and OBGYN. And what I could not give up was the idea of doing physical exam and surgery. Like they're just two things I really liked. And, and, you know, physical diagnosis skills i i'm more realistic about nowadays even as an obstetrician like obviously you you can't really not check a a cervix except you know digitally and we don't really have scans for that but when it comes to a lot of the the other practical hands-on stuff You know, pretty much anybody who comes in with an abdominal pelvic pain presentation and is a female with some very basic screening questions is going to go see you guys in radiology and get a scan. You know, um, they're cost effective enough that they can give a lot more information. And, you know, maybe I'm in the like super minority of obstetricians, uh, but I don't think I am. And surgery, man, I love surgery. Just, it's so cool to be able to take something out of somebody that's diseased and see their their pain go away to, I mean, the worst situations when somebody's, you know, comes in maybe with an abruption, like their placenta is trying to deliver before the baby, which is, uh, or can be like a significant emergency for mom or baby, and they don't even speak our language um you know they might not be from this country like those incredibly terrifying moments i don't get too fussed about that's given me a lot of like satisfaction to be able to be that calm presence and especially when people would make fun of me for being too calm um like yeah that's right i'm super chill